Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. Today, I have a very special treat for you all. This is an old and dear friend, Farah Pandith, who is the author of How We Win, How Cutting-Edge Entrepreneurs, Political Visionaries, Enlightened Business Leaders, and Social Media Mavens Can Defeat the Extremist Threat. Such a critical topic today, and I'm so delighted to have Farah join us. Thanks to social media, we have reconnected. We actually went to middle school together, so this is way, way back machine for me, but on such a current topic. So welcome, Farah. I am so delighted, Heidi. Thank you. This is such a treat. So you have had an incredible journey since we last saw each other. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I think probably you're the best one to tell the story. Can you explain a little bit about sort of where you've been and what brought you to where you're at today? Heidi, we knew each other, as you said, in middle school. So, you know, when I think about the journey, it is a very long journey since we, we last chatted. But I think what is important and the, and the theme that comes through uh, at every turn in the, in the road is really about looking around communities and, and seeing and hearing from people at the grassroots about what's going on. And while we can say that we generally are perceptive, I don't think a lot of people are actually having conversations with each other in ways that sort of get to the, the heart of how, how they feel in communities. And I was very privileged to be able to serve in our government right out of college and and worked at the U.S. Agency for International Development, where I was traveling, you know, in a a capacity internationally, but doing work on the ground. Uh, As you know, USAID gives economic and humanitarian and development aid to countries all over the world. So you're really seeing firsthand the power of the grassroots of civil society and what you can do at a local level. And that lesson is really transformational because it makes you understand what can really happen when people come together. And and my professional career, while I separated in government, you know, 10 years apart, really from going to be in public service, I I first started right out of, of college went to graduate school and then stayed in the Boston area where I worked at a, in the private sector. But after 9-11, I was called back to service and really used the skills that I learned about listening in a, in a bigger way and in a more dramatic way. And when I returned back to government in 2003, I did go back to the U.S. Agency for International Development because we needed to do more work to engage in parts of the world that were critical for us. And so I worked on the region that covered the Middle East and North Africa and also Afghanistan and Iraq. And when, and when I had an opportunity to join the National Security Council, I moved to the White House and served at the National Security Council working on Muslim engagement. And that propelled me to a different platform because you're really looking at policy in a different way when you're at the NSC. And when the Danish cartoon crisis happened in 2006, our country and countries around the world were really caught off guard. I mean, this is pre-viral videos. This is pre, you know, the kind of thing that we see right now. Twitter had not even happened yet. People were using Facebook, but not in the numbers that we're seeing now. So we were really surprised 
that something that could happen in Copenhagen could have an effect on a life in Kabul. And Heidi, when that happened, I uh, began to advance a different kind of thinking around how we solve problems and how we listen to people on the ground. And I moved to the Department of State, where I served in, in the Bush administration as well, and then in the Obama administration as the first special representative to Muslim communities our country had ever had, and traveled throughout the world to nearly 100 countries, and really began to work on how to, how to work with the grassroots and local communities to push back against the ideology of extremists. So I've been doing that, you know, public service primarily since college. And now uh, I am the author of this new book because I've spent the last couple of years writing it. I love that. And it really speaks to the power of a transformational journey and following sort of following your passion and your, you know, obviously you have this incredible skill set as well, but to really create something that's so necessary. And it's such a critical conversation to be having at this time. And you know, I just want to commend you for the ama- your amazing journey and for coming out on this side of it to be able to share what you've learned there. What, what do you think was sort of the biggest challenge in sort of transitioning from the, you know, the work, your public service work to where you are now? And, and how do we, because obviously the dynamic of the tools that we're using to reach our audience has changed. Where do you think we're going with that? And uh, what are your plans? One of the things that was really important for me uh, when I left government was to be able to share with the American public what I had seen around the world. I felt very strongly that uh, to be given an opportunity to serve your nation is one of the most incredible gifts you can have. And it was a true privilege to be able to serve. I served three American presidents, actually, in, in my professional career. I'm not a political person, but I served as a political appointee. And I think that's a really important thing to say in the context of what's happening to our country right now where we're pushing and pulling and defining people by what we believe they are and what their political stances are. When I came into public service, it was about serving our nation and certainly was called back post 9-11 because as an American and as a Muslim, I was watching a terrorist organization try to define my country and my religion and felt very strongly that there was something that I needed to do to serve. So I say this to you because when I left government in 2014, it wasn't because I wasn't enjoying my time in government. It, it was because I felt that it was time to be able to tell the story of what was possible if you didn't have the optic of the U.S. government not sort of holding you back from, from sort of telling every contour of of what is taking place from my perspective. And when you've traveled to as many countries as I was lucky enough to travel to, hearing and being part of so many conversations and meeting so many young people who had innovative ideas on how to stop extremism, it was, I felt, very important to be able to tell that story and give agency to these young people, but also to to tell the American public that the solutions to the to this vile us and them ideology are both affordable and they're available. And that's why I wrote this book. And such an important book. And so what are your top things that you recommend people do? Because there is that gap. There is that basically big misunderstanding. There's there's miscommunication. There's, there, there's so much fuzzy gray area there that people, you know, 
some people take it as black and white, but that in-between space is really challenging to communicate through and to to get clarity on sort of how can we help? How can we how can we diminish and create a, a bridge, diminish this gray area gap? Well, it's such an important question, Heidi. Ultimately, people look at the issue of terrorism or extremism or the rise of hate in, in the world, in our country, and they think it's a, a, a problem that's so difficult and so big that there is no way that they can make a difference. And I completely reject that. It is not too big. We are innovative problem solvers. <laughs> we are able to figure things out and we have understood very precisely how young people form their identities, how environments impact the way kids are raised, how we think about the other. And I absolutely believe, as everybody listening to this podcast know, the way you treat each other, civility, how you give respect to another person, even if they have a different opinion, actually goes a very long way to changing the nature of a community, however big or large that, it, that will be. And if you broaden that, that concept that you, one person, can make a difference, it's beyond sort of a little tagline and little soundbite that sounds sweet. It's really about understanding what it means to be in your community and, mm -hmm. and to create the kind of community that you want. We can either have a country that thinks that hate is fine and we can be lazy on trying to solve it, or we can say, what do we know about how to change the way in which we feel as a nation. It's, and and we, there are things that we can do at, at a neighbor level, at a school level, at a state level, at a national level that can, get, can absolutely impact the way we think about the us versus them ideology. I love what you're saying. And I think that's so important. But I think for individuals, sometimes they don't even know where to start. I mean, when we were living in Sweden, for example, I remember there was a big sort of discussion and controversy over because they didn't allow baseball caps in school. But what was the discussion was, can they wear the hijab, for example, and, mm -hmm. and sort of the the implications of that, because it was so much beyond like a piece of clothing. And I think that there's, it's a very heavy topic. And how do we bridge that as individuals? How do we help people understand the bigger picture? I think it's a, a, a critical question you're asking. And even the first step may sound really so small that you think it really is nothing you can do. I often talk to parents who ask how to raise children who, uh, who can be, you know, light in, in all this darkness, who can, in fact, propel a different kind of image in their school about how to absorb the other, how to think about the other with dignity, even though that there's difference and you may not buy into everything that other person stands for. And the contours of those conversations that parents are having around their breakfast table um, or dining room table is the first place to start. And I know that sounds really obvious, but really it is the way in which we teach our uh, young generations to understand, for example, what the bad actors do online we keep them away from places online because we know that it's dangerous for them. That means the parents have had that conversation with their children. If we think bad things are happening in our neighborhood, you know, neighborhood watches come together, communities come together, and they think, how can we work on this together? We don't have that kind of 
mindset necessarily in communities across our country with regard to creating a more civil space. And I think that can be done. I think that there's far more, even without money, even without tons of time, it requires, you know, leaders within communities, parents and others to say, what do we want this community to be? What do we want our neighborhood to be? Forget about an entire town. What do we want the four blocks around our house to be like? What do we think about these issues? And so when you bring that forward and you begin to have the conversation about discussion about difference, it becomes more manageable. It doesn't become this gigantic thing that is too difficult to be able to navigate through. There's a lot of pain in some of these conversations that happen around sexuality or race or religion and identity, but belonging is something that every human craves. And we can do a better job of making each other feel like they belong. Absolutely. And to that point, you obviously cover this piece in your book, but looking at, you know, people that are influencers, and that comes everywhere, you know, all the way down to, you know, the kid that's got this incredible YouTube channel that's got a big following to, to people, you know, business leaders who have a big following and are influencers. What are the kinds of things that we can do to to make sure that they are actually, or, or that if we are one of those people, that we are doing things to actually be more productive and positive and to sort of generate that counter effect to the extreme? Yeah, no, Heidi, this is important. And I, and I think, you know, you talked about sort of the, the gravitas that we apply to this issue becomes so paralyzing that many don't feel like they can even just get at it. And so if you are a leader, to be able to break it down to just the smallest block, the simplest aspect of how you treat another person is the way in which you start. And also for the leaders that are out there, you know, we become very nervous about saying too much or doing too much that could somehow tarnish who we are. Mm -hmm. It is never wrong to be kind. It is never wrong to be compassionate. And even talking about those words, you know, people get nervous about that. They, they feel like it's too gushy. They won't be taken seriously. We have to talk about the tools in our toolbox that aren't just difficult tools or hard power tools or military or law enforcement. We have to be able to talk about the softer tools in our toolkit that allow us to do a lot more at a faster speed with less money when we apply them. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think, you know, it comes back to sort of the soft skills that before were downplayed, and now we're, you know, finally receiving the recognition that these are really important skills to teach, to apply, to use, and to really just build empathy. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I really, I, I just, I love what you're doing. And I think it's so important to to also come at it from some of the hard issues. You know, it's easy to sort of scratch the surface. What are the things that you have seen? I mean, obviously, you've seen a whole range from different countries across the globe. It sounds like you've worked a lot with, you know, sort of the grassroots level. Where's the biggest place that we can shift? And what are the big challenges that you see? Well, one of the things that's important that even though this book is about what I saw with Muslim youth around the world, because I was working on issues around how young people were interested in the us versus them ideology, basically the system that exists 
that the, the bad guys deploy to be able to recruit to Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And that sounds so scary to the average person. They think that there's nothing, you know, they, they don't have anything to do with that. And so therefore, they're going to look to government to, to do to work on those issues of terrorism. And I and I think what's important to understand is some of the lessons that I I have learned through thousands of conversations with Muslim youth around the world. One is understand that as a planet, we are obviously all connected. Mm. And what is happening in one part of the world makes a difference to another. It is not something that happens over there mm-hmm. or in a space that isn't something that you think about every every day. And it isn't something that we think about only because a bad event happens in Orlando or New York or in San Bernardino. It isn't about when the chaos and the destruction and the the terrorism takes place that you suddenly think this is still in, you know, in our universe. We have to understand that there are bad actors that don't stop thinking about how to recruit young people. Today, these groups are terrorist organizations that you've heard of like ISIS and Al-Shabaab and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And tomorrow, they will be other groups. These kinds of groups aren't going away. What we can do is dramatically change the environment so that the people that they're trying to lure into their groups, young Muslims under the age of 30 primarily, don't find this ideology appealing. And what's important to understand is that while I could be talking about groups like ISIS, this could be true for some of the other horrific us versus them ideologies that exist with neo-Nazi groups and the rise of anti-Semitism across the world is outrageous. And we have not been paying attention to that either. There are lessons to be learned about how you stop that ideology from being attractive. And that gets down to something that I learned only through the various conversations I had in, in all these countries, which was at the, at the base of everything, even though there are differences around the world, these young kids were having a very hard time post 9-11 navigating through their identity. Uh, mm-hmm. This idea of how can you be modern and Muslim, what's actually taking place, is something that is very unique to this demographic of Muslims in a post 9-11 age because they have seen the word Islam or Muslims on the front pages of their papers online and offline. The world is looking at them differently and it's making a difference to how they feel about themselves. The emotional component is really, really important. And when we think about belonging, when we think about identity, and we think about the human mind, we obviously know every kid, everybody, every one of us, as we were growing up, you know, we're asking questions about who am I and what's my purpose and questions about identity, you know, they they exist for anybody, you know, in any culture. But when you have bad actors whose only job all day, every day is to prey upon those kids who are having a crisis of identity and giving them answers that mm-hmm. they know will find appealing will have a problem. So I think one of the things that's most important as we step away from this, as we think through what's really taking place is that one fourth of the planet is Muslim Heidi mm-hmm. and one billion of that number is under the age of 30. So this is a large wow. demographic that we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and there's far more that we all need to do to make sure that we puncture any kind of us and them as these kids are navigating through their identity. So critical. And I think, you know, you touched also on a piece that I I think is really important to to recognize for us as Americans is that it's not just 
you know, this whole us and them piece is not just from the, the Muslim community, but we are seeing a rise of that in so many other areas. And it's, it's uh, you know, so a lot of what you're teaching, a lot of the lessons that you've learned can be applied to other areas as well. And I think that that's something we're seeing arise everywhere. It's actually, it's not just in America, everywhere we're seeing this rise of this us and them. And how do we diminish that and open open people's hearts and minds to to sort of recognizing the lesser black and white, but also appreciating the beautiful parts of of the other. For example, I mean, the, the Muslim religion in its cleanest state is a beautiful thing. And and we don't hear about that side. We don't, we don't open one ourselves of the, up. Th- yeah. And one of the things, Heidi, though, you know, uh, when we're looking at humanity, just in, in general, the larger conversation about who we are as Americans can have Oftentimes, it's taken on a very political bent in the context of the world we're living in right now. People are defining that differently. We're, we're doing a lot of retelling of American history. <laughs> we're reshaping who's good and who's bad. We're having these global and national conversations around who is right and who is wrong. And I think it's important to step back and say, why why are we having those conversations? And how do we want to, how do we want to be? I mean, how do we want to live? And what is possible? And it's not that you have to completely spend all day learning about others, but you need to be more aware and go a little bit farther in how you understand who those people who are quote others are. And I think it comes back to, I mean, you, you use the word empathy earlier and compassion. But there's also civility um, mm. in the way in which we want to be. And, and that word hasn't been used a lot. President Obama used mutual respect as a term of art as he was navigating through some of these issues. And that's important. You heard also in recent times, uh, President Bush also talk about this idea of respect. And, and I, I want to go back to that because mm. I think it's beyond tolerance. Mm. It's beyond putting up with somebody else. It's about saying that you can be who you are and it's fine. It doesn't mean you have to beat your chest and make everybody believe that your way is the only way, but that you can live side by side with other people who are different, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's really, really important. And in the context of America, Heidi, we are a nation that has gone through so many chapters of very difficult conversations around identity, obviously. Mm. But the thing that we come together with as Americans is the ability for us to to be free mm. and to be able to think freely. And and our constitution, you know, provides that uh, for everyone. And I think coming back down to the basics here is we're having this conversation about humanity and and being a humanitarian, I guess, in the most basic of senses. Um, it is how we want to be treated by by each other, and and whether the politics are different, whether your you know your religious standing is different, or your race is different. It's who can we be together to be able to 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 exist in a way we're not going to become a, a stronger nation if we are having these conversations and and making sure that Generation Z and millennials continue to have them. We will be a stronger nation if we are teaching millennials and Generation Z that there is something far better that we can achieve, certainly with the capacity and the tools that they have to be able to come together in new ways. You know, it is, it's limitless in terms Mm -hmm. of what can happen. 
So true. And I think, you know, you're, you're touching on an area that actually I was wanted to lead into next in terms of the tools and how do we, how do we use all of these great tools that we now have in our hands to reconnect with old connections and to reach out to new communities and create better understanding. Whether it's doing collaborative projects across cultures or whatever it is, have you seen any examples of some exciting opportunities using technology to to connect communities and create better understand, not just understanding, but appreciation for each other? Heidi, in my book, I talk a lot about technology. I have a chapter that I call Shake Google, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it talks about, obviously, what I saw happening with the use of technology, not just by the bad guys, but by those that I that are that are being part of what I call Dumbledore's army, who are fighting back against this ideology of us versus them, using in fact the the tools of technology to bring common voices together. And so this can be applied in a lot of different ways. I'll mention three. One is the obvious network component, which is if a great idea exists in Denver, it's connected to DACA because two people are working on something very similar and they can share share how they did something or what they might be able to do and expand it. Um, that's sort of the network platforms that you can imagine. But there's mm-hmm. also the agency component where people can take their own voices and make them real and apply them to the, the greater audience. And so you see lots of change in the years since 9-11 where Muslims who are fighting back against the ideology of the bad guys are putting forward alternative and very vibrant, you know, descriptions of what they are and who they are around identity mm. that appeal. And they're using whether it's podcasts or YouTube videos or um, using, you know, the, the, the tools for this generation is, is, you know, obviously both online and offline, but in the online component, you know, ways in which you can see the diversity of Islam so that you're absolutely rejecting what the bad guys are saying, which which is important. The bad guys want you to believe that there's only one way to be a Muslim, that there's a monolith. Mm. Um, the more voices you have that are out there that are millennials and Generation Z saying, let me show you who I am. And it's a peer-to-peer demonstration. You have an opportunity to make a gigantic difference. And then the third, and I think this is really important, is um, how you use technology to make it more mainstream in the way you don't have to go looking you don't have to go looking for the alternative ideas. They appear because of the way the algorithms work. So you're seeing NGOs that have experimented and worked with actually tech companies and others to be able to put other content in a place where people who are searching for bad ideas will see it. So there are lots of different ways technology can be used right and are being used right now. And I talk about that in my book and give lots of examples. But I also talk about the fact that there is great possibility with technology, obviously, in how we think about what AI and other dimensions of technology are using for the future. And I think when you go back to the basics of what I'm saying about this identity crisis that is happening around the world, the search for, you know, the question, who am I? We, we have done a lot of work on, you know, the human mind. Mm-hmm. And if we understand that a human doesn't have a mature brain until the age of 24. There's a lot that can happen between one and 24 that helps them navigate through some really complex things. And AI is beginning to make a difference in that realm as well. And I don't know why we would not apply some of those tools to the issue that we're dealing with with regard to extremism. 
So key. And I absolutely agree with you. And, 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 you know, a lot of what you're saying is really, it comes back to some basic principles around rebranding and, and just making sure that the communication is clear and that it's reachable and that, you know, it, you don't have to necessarily go digging for it, but it helps you get that, you know, that natural sort of inclusiveness in a way. Exactly, um, and, exactly. Yeah, so, as, you know, such a critical message. And and thank you for, for digging deeply into that. Before we go, I want to touch a little bit on, more on your story, because you have such an incredible story. And you actually came back into my radar, uh, I guess, about 10 years back, when I was doing some work with an organization. And I was in living in Sweden, and I was working with this organization that was trying to increase the roles of women in leadership between Scandinavia and the Gulf countries. And there was a lot mm-hmm. of really interesting conversations around sort of in there, it was the unintentional, it's that whole thing of unconscious bias, where in the beginning, it was a lot of that, let us tell you how to do it. And 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 sort of it took someone from the outside perspective, which at that point was me, because I was coming in as a technologist rather than coming in as a representative of Sweden or the Gulf countries to say, wait a minute, stop telling each other what to do. And Mm -hmm. this this is not about we're right, you're wrong, you've got to learn how to do it. But there was, you know, it was all with great intentions. And I think that's the piece that, you know, when you dig deeper, you can understand, you know, how do you remove that unconscious bias so that your true intention comes across? Because even when you're trying to do something good, it, uh, you know, it sometimes can backfire because you do something that is either culturally incorrect or disrespectful, but you don't realize you've done that. And I think that you've been able to bridge a lot of that. Do you have any tips around that? And what, how have you managed that? Well, Heidi, first of all, I want to say, you know, it is it was technology that brought us back together again, which I'm delighted about. And it's such a, a joy to be speaking with you all these years later and to know the kind of work that you have been doing around sort of making the world, in fact, more uh, aware uh, and, and more connected in, 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 in a deeper sense about who they are and how they how each of us can can act. So I really I really think that this is a question that connects to that theme in, in your own work, and that is listening, how you are able to listen. And I think we all understand the importance of not going into situations thinking that we have the whole story, we get everything, we're so much and so far ahead of who we're talking to that we're just going to tell them what to do. And I think one of the things that I would say to you is, Learning how to listen is, in fact, definitely a skill, and it requires a lot of patience in with yourself in making sure that you are understanding the cultural cues around you so that you aren't applying the same brush to every culture that you're going into. And in these conversations I had in nearly 100 countries around the world, I mean, no two conversations obviously were the same and no two conversations even within a country were mm-hmm. the same. It really depended on, you know, who I was talking to, but going in with just an open mind and the sensibility, the sensibility of respect for the people that you're speaking with is an essential first step to being able to do any of this. And I think that if we can apply that to, I mean, anything that we do, even going into a boardroom to have a conversation at a meeting, you've got to respect the other, mm-hmm. even if they don't look like you, even if they don't 
have cultural touch points that make sense to you. They're not inferior to you. And I think that is, that's the most fundamental lesson. Absolutely. And I would almost add to that curiosity, just, you know, curiosity for the differences rather than not just listening, but really being honestly curious and wanting to know sort of who that person is or what their belief system is and how, you know, how that fits. I think some of us are just not curious enough. We're just so busy doing that we don't have an opportunity you know, to exactly. be. Exactly. And, and Heidi, it's, it's, it's also asking questions that help you to understand how that person may makes the decisions that they make. Where is it coming from and why will mm. help you to understand their cultural connectivity to the issue that you're dealing with. So everything doesn't always look as it seems. People do things for reasons that you may not quite understand until you ask them those questions. How do you come to that point? Where are you seeing things that I'm not seeing? Um, those are important components. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so such a vital conversation. And thank you for really bringing that to the forefront. And, you know, it's, it's reminding me of, you know, when, so I'm married to a Swede. And when we first were together, there was a lot of opportunities that would normally be sort of miscommunications between a partners. But because of the cultural differences, it gave us an opportunity to say, well, when you said this, this is what it means to me. Did I misunderstand that because maybe it's a cultural thing? Or is that what you really meant? But we don't often take the opportunity to ask that in exactly in regular exactly. It's exactly the same thing. Yes, exactly. And, and you that you hypercharge all of this with what people see in the technology space, which is only the outward patina of what's actually taking place as opposed to where people are coming from. So we, we have to be extra careful about how we listen, how we understand things, and how basically the, the fundamental piece here is how do you treat the other? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. how are you coming at another human being who is equal to you? And equality is a very important piece of, of the way in which we must think about you know, our, our fellow humans. Yes. And so getting back to the human piece, and uh, as a humanist, I'm curious about you and how you take care of yourself, because you're obviously incredibly busy doing, you know, all these incredible things to to save the world <laughs> in your own little way, or your own big way. Taking, what do you do for self care and digital well being? It's important to say a couple of things. The the first is, I think, the terminology around self-care is really interesting to me because I think we're using that as, as if it's something that, that you put on to a daily routine or it's something that, that, sh- that is not part of who you are. And I kind of take a different approach. For me, as I think about how lucky we are to be <laughs> on this planet, hopefully doing something day to day that we're passionate about, that's the fundamental piece of who I am. I'm the things that I do, I really, really care about. And I'm, I'm very lucky that way. I know that not everybody in the world gets to pick what it is that they do. And I want to be very clear about that. I also know how privileged I've been in being able to see what I've seen in this world and to have the kind of experiences I've had. So my, my daily life is really one in which uh, it is passion filled for what I do. And I'm very grateful for that. But I also, spirituality is a very important component to, to my, my being, whether, you know, whether you want to talk about it as a religious thing or not, it's just the idea that there's greater purpose in this world and there's greater 
greater importance for, for contribution in this world. And I'm dedicated to that. That's, that's what I do. I, I live a, a life that is that way, I hope. And, and it's, it's very important to me. In terms of the, the daily routine of that, uh, it comes out in a lot of different ways. There's certain things I will definitely tell you that are important, which include exercise and which include meditation for me and, and prayer is very important as well. But uh, I'll, I'll also say, because we're talking together, Heidi, after all these years, I think that the joy that you get from from friends mm. uh, and from people who uh, make you laugh and make you think about you know who you are and and give you joy fundamentally change your experience in a day, and I think that's extremely extremely important part of of a of human uh, human life, and it needs to be applied to our daily life, not just sort of on the weekend or on holiday. So true. And I, you know, to that point, I have been just really loving in the last year reconnecting with a lot of old friends that I found there's something about old friends that that is such a beautiful thing because there's it's so much easier to laugh and be silly with them when you knew them from way, way back because yeah. they're like they're like, yeah, whatever, you're doing this now. But I remember when you were like that. <laughs> and then it's like it, it just it removes all of that seriousness and you can just go be silly. And that is something that I have found going into the second half of my 100 years. Um, <laughs> that that has been so important to me is to find those people that I can be silly with and laugh with and, and just be and so to that piece, I want to really just acknowledge an old friend, when we reconnected, all I could think of was this image of you with this big smile. And it was just in a, but it was you as a middle schooler, in that image in my head. And, and it just, it just warmed my heart. So I think that, you know, there's such a value to recognizing those people that create that joy for you just by having that connection. So thank you. Heidi, that's so, so kind. And I, I feel the same way. We were very privileged to have an opportunity to know each other when we were very young. And I'm thrilled we've reconnected. But most importantly, how honored I feel to be part of your podcast and to have this opportunity to have a conversation with you today. Thank you. Thank you. You're so welcome. And for those of you listening, please make sure you go check out her book. It's launching today, the same day that this podcast goes live. It's called How We Win, How Cutting Edge Entrepreneurs, Political Visionaries, Enlightened Business Leaders, Social Media Mavens Can Defeat the Extremist Threat. Such a key topic. And thank you so much, Farah, for really taking it head on and sharing your story. It's been an honor to have you today. And for those digital selfers out there, thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. We've got a really exciting lineup for this year. Wouldn't want you to miss a single one. So thank you. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for The Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes. 